thank you that tonight we have an opportunity to talk about how we can get involved in your kingdom. We know the things that are important to you, and that's to worship you with our entire being because that's when we're complete and we have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. I know that you're satisfied with that, first and foremost, because you paid such a steep price for us to be able to walk into a relationship such as this with Jesus, that you sent your son to die for us. So you must be super passionate about connecting with us and help us to connect with you tonight and help us then to turn around and look at our neighbor as somebody you passionately love as well. Whether it's our spouse, whether it's our kids, our neighbor, our coworker, regardless of the attitude they can give us, regardless of where they're at in life, whether they're with joy or not, it doesn't matter because you came and died for them and that you have something for them. Help us to understand your call. Help us to understand your mission. Help us to have passion for Jesus. Thank you tonight we get to open scripture and read it and do it in safety. I pray for those who don't have safety. I pray for those fleeing right now in Iraq, Syria, Egypt, all northern Africa really, that there's no way they could do this. They would be killed with what we're doing right now. What privilege we have but what a burden we must bear in prayer over these people. Tonight, we ask that you come and meet with us. And as always, you're invited amongst us, and we thank you for um, allowing us to be a part of this church to represent you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 We are going to go through two chapters tonight, and um, it's a, just a kind of a, a really good story of what's going on with Paul. And as you turn to Acts 25, I am going to um, kind of give you a background so it's seamless because we are coming into the middle of a story, what's been happening for a while. And so um, we do know that in Acts 20, man, Paul was coming back. He knew he had to make it back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. He knew it. He's a Jew. It's one of the, the, the required feasts. All the Jews, if they can make it, they would come back for one of the three required feasts, and this was one of them, Pentecost. comes back, but all of his friends, his closest friends, Luke and Timothy and all these people, are like, you're not going to make it out of there. If you go, don't go, and they're crying. It's huge. It's emotional. And he just says, why the tears, guys? I'm ready to die for Jesus. Why the tears? This is what I'm called to do. This is why Jesus saved me. I'm on mission. This is part of it. Well, he goes back and bam, he talks to who? The leader of the church. Jesus' half-brother, James. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And, Jesus, and, and, and James is like, Paul, you need to go to the temple because there's a little stirring about you. There's some gossip going on. That what you're doing out in, in your missionary journeys, you're telling Jews that you're not to be doing, following these Jewish customs and all these things. And and really, he wasn't, because a Jew can follow the Jewish customs, and it's good for a Jew to do that. It's part of their heritage and everything else, but it's not a requirement for salvation, which was a big issue, that they were trying to levy the, all these requirements of circumcision and following the feasts and the moons and the calendar or whatever with the Gentiles. He's trying to get the Gentiles to do this, and that was a big problem. So he was going up, and he was establishing theology amongst the Gentiles, but there were a lot of Jews up in Asia, modern-day Turkey, I had a problem with that. Well, so the same reason why Paul wanted to come back to Jerusalem to find Pentecost, all those other Jews from all those locations up in Turkey and all around were also coming down. This was a moment where all the nations were gathered. 
All the nations were gathered. So Paul does what James says. He goes there and tries to make peace. You can read about it in chapter 20. But the problem was a lot of these Jews up probably in Thyatira area, Thessalonica, somewhere up in there that was giving Paul a lot of problems, even tried to kill him up there, were back in Jerusalem, and they saw Paul, and they're like, we're going after him here. And bam, they tried to convict him, almost killed him, and then the Roman government steps in. Lysus, the commander, says, wait a second, what's going on? What does this man done? Everybody's coming after Paul. Everybody is coming after Paul. This Roman commander gives him the opportunity. He steps up. He gives him a, a beautiful, beautiful testimony of his life. And it was just an incredible testimony about the power of Jesus and the power of God. And then he says, I was going out to the Gentiles. And once he said Gentiles, the Jews just went crazy. And the Roman government didn't have any other choice but to calm this, these people down. These were like animals in the temple. And he puts him in the barracks. They tried to kill him. And then he goes into 21 and 22. Now 23 happens. So 22 is when he gives his testimony. 23, he's sitting in the barracks and they're going to move him. But if more than 40 Jews try to plot against him and kill him. They even go on a fast. You guys remember that story? Like we're not going to eat or drink until we get him. Well, Paul's nephew, his sister's son, hears about this. And what does he do? He sneaks his way into the barracks, and he says, Paul, this is what's happening. They're going to ambush you. And Paul's like, really? Okay, Roman centurion, take my nephew and go to the governor and talk to him, or go to the commander and talk to him. So he goes and takes him to Lysias, and he tells Lysias, the Roman commander, and he's like, really? So what he does? I mean, he just surrounds Paul with this entourage of like 200 guardsmen and these 70 horses or 200 spearsmen, something like that. Some crazy amount, and then takes him to Caesarea and says, this is the governor's problem, Felix. I ain't handling this issue. And so it gets him safe to Caesarea. Caesarea is a beautiful location, probably a day's travel right next to the Mediterranean. It ends up Paul stays there for about two years because Felix is a procrastinator and can't make up his mind on what he's going to do with Paul. Well, just so has it, history tells us, after being two years, Paul's in captivity with Felix, the Roman government replaces Felix, and then here we have Festus, the new governor. Now, these governors are equivalent to Pilate. If you remember Pilate, he was the fifth governor of Judah. Pilate's the one who let Jesus over, and he was killed. It's the same equivalent in power. And so we got Festus. It's the same equivalency in power as Pilate had. Now, Paul is in custody with Festus. And here we are, chapter 25. Festus takes over from Felix. And just follow with me here. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up to Caesarea, from Caesarea to Jerusalem. So he just gets elected into this position. This position is a Roman position. The Roman government, the Caesar of Rome... Caesar Augustus at this time appoints him for this position. It's a big position, okay? And so he comes, as soon as he gets elected in this position, he wants to go, and he's going to go to the capital, Jerusalem. And then the high priest, the highest of the temple, and the chief men of the Jews. So really, everybody was swag in the temple was here. Informed him against Paul. 
And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem, summon Paul back to Jerusalem. That's what they're trying to do. While they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. So they want to do it again. They're going to lay and hang out. They're trying to get the governor, the Roman governor, into this conspiracy to kill Paul. They hate Paul. What did Paul ever do to make to deserve this much hate? Seriously hate him for this. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, so he looks at him. He looks at the Jews. And he says this to them, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. So I'm not bringing him back to Jerusalem. That's what he says. He's probably afraid of an uprising. He's got this position. He doesn't want to lose it. So why don't you and your elect men, why don't you come up to Caesarea or go down to Caesarea? Because every direction is considered down from Jerusalem. And regardless of what location you're in in the world, if you go to Jerusalem, you go up because they consider it the high place, right? And so here's Festus in the same position as Pilate, the 12th governor. He's being given responsibility now of a man who is innocent. And these elite Jewish men in Jerusalem want Paul dead, but Paul is innocent. And it kind of takes you back to Pilate. Jesus was innocent. And Pilate had an issue on his hands. I know this man is innocent. Even my wife is telling me don't mess with this man. But the pressure of the culture around him was just overwhelming, and he gives in. And now this guy is kind of in a position. But Paul has one thing that we'll talk about here shortly. It says in uh, verse 6, And when he had remained among them, more than 10 days. So he hung out in Jerusalem more than 10 days, it says. He went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. So he gets, as soon as he gets back into Caesarea, it's like courtroom time. You can just picture it. And then he has a seat. They call it the judgment seat. And when he sits on it, it's business. It's time to do business in the court. And so he commands Paul to be brought, and when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove while he answered for himself. And so Paul starts to speak. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. So for two years, he's pretty much quiet. Now he gets this opportunity to this new Roman governor. All these, the elite of the Jewish temple are up and they're trying to levy all these false complaints against Paul and try to get him killed. The, the Jews have zero proof to back up their claims against Paul. And since Paul is a Roman citizen, he has to be given a fair trial. And to be convicted of any crime... There has to be proof saying he did this thing. It's kind of like us in our judicial system. It's similar to that. And that Roman citizenship was powerful, which is why he's not easily convicted. So here it is. It's interesting because I look at this and I start thinking, I start examining this whole thing. And God had chosen Paul with a man of enormous amount of passion and intelligence. Very intelligent. 
Um, he was a man who could influence many people from different cultures and in languages. Where everywhere he went, he could relate to somebody. And it was God's plan for Rome to hear the message. It was God's plan for Rome to hear the message. And so God chose Paul for a reason. And it wasn't just because he had an enormous amount of passion, enthusiasm for the law, and all these things. When he got converted, he was just a radical Christian. But also, he was a Roman citizen. So for him to be tried in a court of law, he could always plead, I want to talk to Caesar, and that would get him to where? Everybody say it. Rome. Which, what's the big deal? Because that's the center of the world. That's the most influential place. You guys have to, when you're reading the scriptures, you have to grasp the strategy that God sets before us in the writing. It's all about the nations. It's all about the nations. Reaching, us reaching the nations for his glory. We see it and it goes all the way back. I mean, we were talking about this last night in the school of discipleship. You had, after the Tower of Babel, then you had Genesis 11. That was the, that's when he confused everyone's languages. Seventy nations were started just like that. Before there were one nation that spoke the same language, then he confuses their language. Bam! Seventy different languages. And then in 12, here comes Abraham, and the thing he says is like, you need to go be a blessing to these nations. And he, that really what he's saying is, you need to take the message to the nations. That's how you're a blessing to the nations. And right out of the gate, that's when man is on part of God's mission. It's the first time we see it in Scripture. And that theme goes all the way through the Scriptures. All the way to Revelation chapter 5, to all the tribes and nations are present before the throne, worshiping, because the church did its role. And that was to take Jesus to the nations. Paul is falling in line with this right here. And God is using him and it's strategic. And they're going to get to Rome. They're going to get to Rome. In 9, verse 9, it says, But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor. Again, this tells you the climate of the scene at the time. Why would the Roman governor have to owe them anything? Why would he feel like he should owe them anything? Because they did levy some sort of power. The Jews at any time could spark an uprising and cause Rome a lot of issues. And so there was a little balancing act. Rome was definitely over them. They were way more powerful than, than, than Israel. But there was the thing. It's like if we can keep these guys at bay, then we will do that because we don't want to have an uprising. And so there was always that tension, and it was important to Augustus Caesar so Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? And so Paul says to Festus, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. I don't need to go back to Jerusalem. There's nothing there for me to do that I haven't already done. They've heard my message. I'm totally innocent. And quite frankly, if I go back there, he knows he's toast. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, Paul says, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar, Paul says. Real fast, 
I'm not taking much time on this, but go back to Acts chapter 23, verse 11. This is very important to keep in mind the entire time. Acts 23, verse 11, God visits, the Lord, Jesus visits Paul at the night, and he says, but the following night the Lord stood by him while he's in the barracks, being convicted of nothing really, of lies. He says, Paul, be of good cheer. For as you testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness of me at Rome. So where do you think Paul is? like he already knows where he's going. He knows I don't need to go back to Jerusalem. God has a plan for me to be in Rome. So he's not going to buy off on all this circus stuff here. He knows he's going to Rome, and he knows he's going to be safe to get there. And then when you start getting to next week, the island of Malta and the shipwreck and everything else, Paul's like, look, God already told me, I'm getting there, so I don't have to worry. And it was a crazy time. So Paul would come, and he would comfort, or the Lord would come to Paul, and he would comfort Paul. And so Paul must have had some, a lot of peace because of that. And then he says in 12, Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Now Paul has his ticket to Rome. Even though it took two years, it probably wasn't Paul's plan, but it was God's plan. But he has to first meet the king of the land. This is when it gets exciting, church. This is when it gets exciting. And so in 13 it says, After some days King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Festus, again, he's the new governor. People got to welcome him into the office. And when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is, a certain man left, there is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accuser face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accuser stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who died. Who Paul affirms that it's alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, so Festus was like, I'm, I'm kind of a fish out of water on this one here. I'm a fish out of water. I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem there to be judged concerning these matters, but when Paul appealed to be reserved for a decision of Augustus, which is Augustus Caesar, I commanded him to be kept till I could go send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa says to Festus, I also would like to hear this man myself. So tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So King Agrippa, who is this man? It seems like I, was, so I can't keep track of all these Agrippas. Like, they're everywhere. It seems like I thought I understood it, and I didn't understand it. Well, this King Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great. What's the big deal about Herod the Great? He's the one who tried to kill all the firstborn males in Bethlehem because he heard of the prophecy that the king is going to come to Bethlehem. And what happened? 
Sure enough, Jesus was born, but he didn't get Jesus, but he killed all the firstborn male childs. This is who we're talking about, but he also had a liking for the Jewish people, and he built the temple, and we still have fragments of that temple today. So when you see like the Jewish people worshiping at that wall, that's the western wall of the temple. That's part of Herod's temple that still stands 2,000 years later. Why did Herod, why did this family have a liking or wanted to be part of the Jewish people? Because he was an Edomite. And then an Edomite is a descendant of Esau. You guys remember Esau in the Old Testament? Esau, who's, who's his brother? Jacob. So Esau was a hairy red one. And then Jacob was the smooth operator one, right? Smooth skin. And then Jacob steals his birthright, all this stuff, and then some other things. Because of that, it just seems like the punishment just keeps coming and coming. And the Israelites want to pass through the land. The Edomites wouldn't let them. So the Jewish people don't like them. All these things to get to this point right here, Herod is an Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau. He has the lineage of a Jew, but he's not really accepted. Things like that. In that place, this right here, that information plays into this situation. I'll explain why. But here's we got, I mean, this family is really messed up. This family in power. Herod the Great was messed up. He was crazy. But then he had crazy kids as well. And then you remember his son, Herod Antipas, was the one that beheaded John the Baptist. Well, then you had um, Herod the first, which we saw in Acts chapter 12. You remember when he also came into Caesarea? And he came in, everybody's like, oh, you're God. And he loved it. And then God struck him down with worms and it ate him from the inside out. You remember that story in Acts chapter 12? Well, this is the son of that same guy. This is the son of that same guy. And you think he would have learned his lesson of how he acts, at least when he gets in the auditorium in Caesarea where his dad died of worms. Crazy. Where am I? So 23. <laughs> So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice, now this even gets crazier. Bernice is Herod's sister. Herod, Agrippa II's sister. And history tells us, Josephus, the historian, secular historian, tells us that there was an incestuous affair between the two. Not a half-sister. She's a full-blown, full-blooded sister. And they're together right here. Right? And it says the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, what's that look like? That means everything is decked out. Everything is shut down for the king is coming, right? Great pomp. He comes in, everybody's celebrating. He had entered the auditorium, the same auditorium his dad died back in 12. With the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. The city is there. Everybody's there. The prominent people are all there. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me. How much of the assembly? The entire assembly of the Jews are after this man right here, Paul, both at Jerusalem and here. It's also come to Caesarea. Paul is not the most popular man on the street right now. Well, at least, he, actually, he's probably the most popular man on the street, but for the wrong reasons, right? 
crying out he was not fit to live any longer. I'm sure Paul felt welcome. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send this prisoner, Paul, and not to specify the charges against him. Yeah, that's pretty unreasonable. He's going to send this new governor, all this pressure on him to do the right thing, and he has to send Paul to Caesar Augustus in Rome and spend all the Romans' money to get him there and, and have all the soldiers go with him. I mean, it's a lot of resources to take this prisoner over there. He's just not some average, ordinary prisoner. He is Paul the Apostle. And he's going to send him up there to talk to Caesar, and Caesar's like, what's going on? He's like, oh, nothing here. Like, I'm, not, I'm innocent. He's going to look at Festus like, what are you doing, right? And so what's he try to do? He tries to rope the king in on it so if there's two people, at least he won't look as bad. And so if he can get King Agrippa with him and then send Paul, it's just like, at least I'm not the only crazy one, so is the king. And, and Caesar might not care so much. So 26.1, you guys there? Hanging in there? As then Agrippa says to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Please hear me on this. Everybody look at me real fast here. This is probably the pinnacle, at this point, the pinnacle in the book of Acts. This, at this point, there has never been an opportunity like this time right here. Paul has never been afforded the opportunity that he is afforded now. And I'm telling you right now, it is a huge stinking deal for Paul to have the king's attention and can speak freely. He doesn't have anybody to, to be in his place, to, like a lawyer or anything to speak. This king says, you can speak. The, the governor is there. Festus is there. All the Jewish elite, all the prominent men in the city if the king is coming, everybody is there. And this auditorium is huge. There's probably 20,000, if not more, people sitting in this auditorium right now. And Paul can speak. Everybody in this auditorium, the way it's designed, can hear Paul's voice very well. That's where they did all their theater and everything else. And so when Paul's speaking, everybody's hearing. This is an opportunity God had put, positioned right here at that moment, at that time. Now Paul can talk about God to everyone. It's part of the mission. And Paul would have never, ever probably have dreamed at this point right here. He was trying to get to Rome, and I'm sure he wanted to bypass all this just to get to Rome. And all his friends who were trying to talk him out of going didn't have this probably in mind at all, but God's plan is perfect. And sometimes we have to suffer. We have to suffer and be in some form or fashion a prison for the sake of the glory of God. These are why these stories are in here for us, to stay strong in times of these seasons of struggles and challenges. This was not an easy time for Paul. He has the entire community of Caesarea and Judea saying, I want to kill you. And he is lonely. He is alone. He has nobody there other than God. 
And this is his opportunity. Watch how he takes advantage of this opportunity. Picture it, okay? Picture it in your minds. It makes it a lot more powerful. So Paul stretched out his hand to answer for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all things which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you. You hear these words that they're using? I beg you. You're an expert. I beg you to hear me patiently. He is an expert because of why? Because he comes from a history of some form of Judaism, because he's an Edomite, okay? I also love this passage right here. And not to get off on a rabbit trail, but since we're talking about evangelism and this weekend, the seminar and all these things, listen. Paul used what? King Agrippa was, his background and everything, to his advantage. Now, was King Agrippa some tight, squeaky Jew person that really followed all the customs and the feasts and everything? Probably not. Matter of fact, he probably wasn't following any of these customs. Maybe so, I don't know, but he knew them. He would play the part, but at the end of the day, it was about his glory, not God's glory. I'm pretty certain I can speak with certainty on that without being there and knowing it just because of the family line that he comes from and who he is. But Paul uses that, what he knows, and he tries to tailor this conversation in such a way where he would be able to absorb it, take it in, and doesn't have to get defensive about it because Paul makes him feel like one of us. Part of me, I'm an evangelist. That's how God has made me. And as I'm out and I look around, I you know, I was in the Air Force, I'm still in the reserves, Every, and I love being in those environments because I get to kind of, you know, be with the people that are still searching in life like I used to be. I can relate, but there's a lot of people that I've found, probably if I asked 10 people at my work, what would you consider yourself? Probably 8 out of 10 of them, if I asked them, would say I'm a, I'm a Christian. They probably could tell you a little bit about Jesus or whatever, but they're saying, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian, That's what, this is who I am. And if I tried to get them to explain it, they probably couldn't explain it very well. And so instead of just trying to confront them and say, well, no, you're not. Well, check this out. If you do all these things or whatever, and I, I will let down. But sometimes you just have to treat people like Christians if they say they are to encourage them to own their identity or at least what they think it is. And so if I see somebody who's really bearing no fruit in Christianity that says they're a Christian, I work with them, I have a good rapport, well, then I'll talk to them about it. A lot of times they go to church. They don't even absorb anything. But they go to church, and I ask them, say, what did the pastor talk about this weekend? Well, he talked about David and Goliath. That's awesome. This is what we believe about it. What do you think? Isn't that crazy how he could cut his head off like that, but he did it all for the glory of God? I just randomly picked the David and Goliath story after I said it out of my mouth. I'm like, it's probably not the one I want to use as an example. But... <laughs> But it's all for the glory of God. What do you think about that? How does that impact your life? The next thing you know, it's like, well, we're Christians. This is what we believe, right? And they start thinking about it. It's like, I never thought about that before. I say I'm a Christian, 
My identity is this, if somebody asks me. But it's like, I don't even think like this, but the Bible says this, tell me more. Bam, I'm in a conversation with them, and next thing you know, they're taking it seriously because we came and it was like, I, I, made, you, like, I've made, I made you feel like one of us. If you say you're a Christian, well, check out all the great things that Christ has to offer. Isn't this crazy how we can live every day like this and, and know we're going to heaven if we believe this? How do you think about this? What do you think about this? And that's what Paul was doing right now to King Agrippa. I don't know if you've ever done that before. Try it. Instead of trying to get into a little argument, try to find a way of peace to get around a conversation to where it's just like, wait a second, if you are that, well, praise the Lord, this is what we believe. How's that? How do you, how, what do you think about that? And next thing you know, you've got a conversation about something real. Amen? Amen? In verse 4, my manner of life from youth, Paul is telling him. My manner of life from youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know that they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I live as a Pharisee. So he was as strict as strict can get, he was saying, and Agrippa knew, knows this. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. And to this promise, our, again, kind of roping him in there, our 12 tribes, he wasn't part, the Edomites weren't part of the 12 tribes, but he's kind of like, this is what it's all about. Earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you, King Agrippa, that God raises the dead? He's putting it on his table. It's like, King Agrippa, you believe this too, right? You believe this. You know all the customs. You know all these things. You know the scriptures, right? This is not an issue. We believe in the resurrection. And indeed, I myself thought I must do many things to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10, this I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, not just any priests, the leaders of the temple, Paul received authority and went and they were put to death. I cast my vote against them. So Paul was literally a murderer. And the chief priests of the temple gave him the letter to do such things as put him in prison. Even consent to their death. So again, we're hearing Paul's testimony. And he's saying it to who? Probably 20, 30,000 people in Caesarea. Every prominent person is there. The king, the governor, all the Jewish people. All the people. All the brass and the military, whatever, they're all here for this. And he's been able to say all this stuff. And when they were, um, and when I had, excuse me, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's what Paul was doing to the church before his conversion. Did you see that? He compelled them to blaspheme. He would go to the doors and say, denounce Jesus as your Savior or you're dead. Man, I don't want to like necessarily rope him into this, but he's kind of like ISIS right now. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. Did you ever think of Paul being like that? And I don't know what degree Paul would go to if he would do what ISIS is doing in such a gruesome way, but I don't know. But the point is the anger 
was there, it says he's exceedingly enraged, not just a little upset. He was exceedingly enraged at the Christian church. And then in verse 12, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O King Agrippa, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? He knew he was Lord. He knew it. We talked about this several weeks ago when I talked about Acts 22. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which you have yet to reveal to you. I have called you to be a minister, he says. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is Paul's mission statement given to him by Jesus. To go to people and tell them about Jesus and bring blind people's sight, deliver them from Satan to God. That's Paul's mission. Really, it's our mission, right? That's the church's mission. To go into the world and tell people about this message to take them out of darkness and into light. And Paul said in Ephesians 2, if you're not walking with Jesus, we're walking according to the prince of the air, which is Satan. You're in either camp. You're walking with Satan or not. I don't care if you say you're the best person on the earth and you don't believe in Jesus. Well, you're right up Satan's alley right there. He's got you tricked because none of us are good. I can sit here in one second and explain that. None of us are good. We've all committed sin against God. We've all broken at least one of the commandments. All of us have broken the first commandment. We have become God. It was about us and not about God. Bam, shall I have no other gods before me? Well, the problem is I like to be God many times. We're all guilty, every single one of us. And you just go down the list. The other nine, boom, you're guilty. Every single person's guilty. And if that's you in here and you're like, no, I'm a good person. My friend brought me here. I just wanted to check out what they're thinking. And I never heard that message before. And if you want more information about it, come, please come talk to me. Because I, at my point in my life in 19, or in 2000, in 2000, around September time frame in 2000, I had two Baptist missionaries walk up on Tuesday night at my door and pretty much for two hours laid it out to me why I'm not a good person. And I was sitting there arguing with them. I mean, arguing with them. No, I'm a good person. And they're like, no, you're not. And... <laughs> And they kept on coming back to the scriptures. Look, you're not. And I remember going to the night, the bed that night, thinking for the first time, God, if you're really up there, I don't think I'm a good person, huh? And about two weeks later, I came to Christ. You know? And it was because somebody had to really point it out to me, you're not good. You're following in the way of Satan, not of God. And they were kind, but they were bold. They're like Paul. They're just going out there. That's their mission. They took me, helped me go from darkness to light. Also, I had another buddy, Dan Schwartz, if you know my testimony, the same thing. He lived with me for a year. He was like my walking conscience, man. Like everywhere I went around the house, I felt convicted, you know. 
I was like, what, what, what is it about him that I don't have? Like, what's he got? And it was, well, it's peace in Jesus. That's what it ended up being. Between Dan and, and these two Baptist men that came over, the next thing you know, two weeks later, I'm walking into Calvary Chapel, and I'm sitting in one of these blue seats over at the bingo hall. I just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> Changed my life. 19, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea in the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that Christ would suffer. The Old Testament, all throughout it, talks about this. The Christ would suffer, starting in Genesis 3.15, the very first prophecy of the Bible. Right out of the gate, bam, the first prophecy is about Jesus and how he would come and suffer. He would be to rise, um, first to rise from the dead, and he would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. There's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about all these things, about Jesus coming, how he's going to look, when he's coming, all these things. And he's saying it's in the Old Testament. It was right here. All of us Jews should have figured that out. And that's his mission. In 24, now as he thus made his defense, Festus, Governor Festus pipes up, says with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning has driving you mad. So Paul has a reputation of being a learned man, a smart man, a student. But 25, but Paul says respectfully, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason for the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention. The king's standing right there and he's talking about him. Like, He's, he's tracking with me, everything I'm saying. And since this thing was not done in a corner, it's not. I mean, the, the scriptures say it. Everybody should have seen it. All the prophecy, we shouldn't have been in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Wow, what a bold statement in front of the entire community of Caesarea. Puts him right there. I know you believe. <laughs> and then look what Agrippa says. King Agrippa. Then says to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. This is one of the first times the word Christian is used. You almost persuade me, Paul. You got a good defense here. And Paul said, I love it, I would to God, I would to God, man, King James needs to figure out how to reword this thing. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. I want all you people in this place to know Jesus. Everybody here listening, and you, King, what an opportunity that Paul was taking. And he was bold. He knew he was safe. He was going to Rome. He knew it. And when he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. 
And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So off, Rome, off to Rome he goes. He's going to go to Rome, and that's where we're going to pick up next week. Boldness. Paul was bold. And God has a plan, and he has a plan for Paul, and he has a plan for you. He's a plan for my kids. And it's to understand that it's about the nations hearing Jesus. And sometimes we suffer. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. But all for the glory of God. All for the glory of God. Paul, what a su- just such an example to us. And he's going to go off to Rome. And he's going to lead the palace guard to Christ. And next thing you know, just several years, 100 years later, Rome becomes their official religion, ends up being Christianity under Con- uh, Constantine. I mean, God's plan is perfect, and he's on the move right now. There's more Christians in Egypt There's more people coming to Christ in Egypt right now than ever before. You guys know that? There are people all throughout the Middle East under this persecution coming to Christ. The church in Iran is one of the fastest growing churches right now. If you do GMO, global media outreach, you'll see Christianity spreading all throughout those regions or people at least interested. And they're going online. Who is God? Who is Jesus? And we have many of you sitting in these seats who are emailing them back and forth, online missionaries. It's one of our missions here. It's part of what we do. We reach the nations. Not all people are called to go, but all people are called to somehow or some way participate in this. Not all called to be Paul. We're not all called to be put in prison like Paul, but some of us may in the future. We don't know, but it's for the glory of God. And you never know. If you're committed to the gospel, you're committed to God and you stay committed and true, you never know what kind of opportunity God will open up in his timing and not yours and mine. This was not Paul's plan, but he knew he had to be obedient, and this is where he is two years later after he gets to Jerusalem for the first time on Pentecost. Here we are two years later. He has the command of everyone important in this area, and he's speaking freely. And he, look how he almost persuaded King Agrippa. Amazing, but we don't know who else he persuaded. I bet he's persuaded many. At this time, but we don't know that. Stay true to your calling. Stay committed to Christ. Understand God's plan in the scripture. He wants you to be a part. He wants you to play your part, not be disobedient. Paul said, I was obedient to go to these places and not disobedient. I just pray in my own life, it is every single day I'm obedient to the call of God. I pray our churches too, that we're not asleep. And if you're not at all involved in people coming to Christ or hearing the message, well, today, tomorrow's a new day. And so ask God, God, help me to be passionate about this. I might not go overseas to Syria or Uganda or Morocco or down to Chihuahua or whatever, but man, how, in the, how can I know where I'm supposed to be called or help support? Because I can't support everything, but help me be engaged in your mission. And once you do that, you'll start seeing God move in great ways Because God is moving, and if you want to be a part of what God's doing, you have to go do it, right? That's where we see God, and that helps us in our worship with God as well, is when we are obedient to him, we go out, we see him move. We see him move, whether it's in your neighbor who's broken because of divorce, whatever the situation is. Apply the principles of God 
and bring Jesus to whatever that situation is, and you'll see God move. And maybe that's what will rekindle your, your spiritual life if you're feeling a little dead and dry. Amen? Stay strong. Let's be committed. There's no day like today. There's no day today like today to serve Jesus. Let me pray, and we'll do communion. Father, I thank you.